Welcome to the very first episode of ProFound, where we interview professional founders. My name is Devon Swanepoel, and in this episode, we sit down with John Sane. John Sane is a trend specialist, business strategist, keynote speaker, author, entrepreneur, and a Singularity University faculty member. So whoever you are, wherever you are, and whatever you might be doing, we hope that this episode of ProFound leaves you inspired. Hi there, my name is John Sane. I'm incredibly excited and privileged to be on a episode of Profound. John, thank you so much for coming. This is the first Profound interview um, that we've done where we interview professional founders. The platform is basically getting behind the professional founder. I think let's start from, from the basics. Where did John Sane grow up? My mom and dad are Iranian, and from a very young age, they decided to be adventurous. And so I was made in Iran, but born in Swaziland. They arrived at six months uh, pregnant with me. I was born in Swaziland and then lived in Swaziland until I was about eight or 12. In between there, we're moving around a bit. My parents got divorced, and uh, then I've lived in Johannesburg, London, Cape Town, and now moving to Dubai. So uh, brought up in Swaziland, quaint little country. Uh, very much rural, like sort of set in the forest, the school and where we used to live. So it was a great place to grow up, but I'm also very happy not to be living there at the moment. Any fond memories? I mean, Swaziland is such, I've never personally been there. Any fond memories of... of, of I met Prince Charles. Really? He, yeah, he came to our school. Interesting. Uh, well, I mean, it was a colony, right? Of yeah. The British Empire. So Prince Charles came, had my first girlfriend. Her name was Gugu Dlamini. I was the only white kid in school. Oh, wow. So, uh, yeah, I was integrated straight into sort of African culture from a very young age without even realizing what was going on. So, um, yeah, my, my name actually in my passport was Sipo, uh, which is gift, actually. Yeah. And so you can imagine in the 1970s, there weren't many expats in Swaziland. And so it was quite a, it was quite a journey. I've been told it was quite a journey for the hospital to be bearing the birth of a Persian in Swaziland, which was just, so the, the nurses and the doctors called me Sipo. And that kind of stuck for two years. And then uh, my passport changed and uh, it changed from that. So I know that uh, your parents got divorced at a pretty young age. Mm. Um, how does that, how did that affect you personally at that age? Obviously having the mom and dad and then obviously this turmoil and then obviously i think you moved i think you then went with your mother mm. if I'm right. well, it was devastating yeah. uh, in hindsight because i think the biggest problem we have today in the society at, at, at large is the lack of fathers um, and whether they are present but unpresent emotionally or whether they're just not there or if they're just diabolical in their development mm. and that was an incredibly difficult process for me, not having a father figure. Um, firstly, uh, having a violent father at that, so my benchmark wasn't great. And then having to be the man of the house from when I was eight years old and my mom and dad getting divorced, that also having an incredibly um, negative impact at the time in hindsight. And now that I've healed it, the most powerful thing that ever happened to me because I was forced into adulthood from eight years old I was forced to figure out that I was desperate for, for acknowledgement from alpha males. And because of that desperation, I attracted a lot of abusive alpha males throughout my life yeah. until I actually figured out that I was just desperate for acknowledgement from an alpha male. And then looked around and realized that many other men in this world are desperate for it. And because of that desperation, we see men, or should I say boys in men's bodies, um, still pretending to be boys, depending on how fast their car is, how much money they have, how big their houses are, 
um, how many girlfriends they have. And all these things are just related to not having a father figure and, and being desperate for acknowledgement. So it's helped me a lot um, in my development now. But when I think back on it then, being financially challenged, not having a male um, role model around was devastating, to say the least. That's massive pressure, especially on that age, because now obviously um, you have a brother. Yeah. Or your brother and sister. I've got uh, two stepsisters, three half-brothers, and one real brother. Oh, wow. Mm. And obviously being the oldest. Always, yes. Um, having to, obviously, I've got my stuff together, and mm. obviously just I'm there for my mom, and like it's fine, mm. like, you know, I've got this. Mm. That's, uh, that's insane. And it, it goes back to what you said earlier. We do have a big issue with dads. Mm. It's, uh, or it's lack of. Lack of. It's yeah. been so easy to... To make children, but then not obviously look after the children. And well, they, they haven't done their own development. And as ma- and, and as men, we have archetypes within us. You yeah. know, warriors, uh, lovers, magicians, kings. They're all archetypes. And if they haven't been developed, uh, we create narcissistic um, personality disorders. We become aggressive. We become sulky. We become, and we don't know why. And so you have men that are in very powerful positions that are triggered and being eight-year-old boys. And the best example we have right now is Trump, unfortunately. But many people in powerful positions are actually boys in men's bodies that have gotten there through bullying and through those sort of things where society has for the longest time celebrated that as success. And really, it's not success at all because those men are desperately unhappy with all those trappings around them. So... It's a it's an issue around the world, and my next book's actually about it. So I'm doing quite a lot of research into it at the moment. Mm. I once watched a Tony Robbins documentary, mm. and he said it's actually for me profound. Where he said, um, "If you if you have you know like bad vibes with your dad, mm. go to him and, and and like yell at him and tell him you know like you messed up my life, and I'm mm. super like upset with you about this and all that. But also in the same breath, thank him because without without that turmoil mm. it couldn't light the fire which is currently burning because i feel once you are, once you've been to that place where, where you're so hurt where the father figure whatever it is is so not there and removed mm. you really try to kind of get that mm. back but that does instill a fire and a perseverance which is not in the normal run of the mill person well that's called wisdom is when you can look at your past and be thankful for it and when you can look at your past and not be triggered by it. And that's wisdom. That's, that's healed pain is what we need to be doing in our lives, you know. And so Tony Robbins in that documentary has, I'm not your guru, he says, move from unconscious memories to conscious memories, from blaming your past to thanking your past. And the minute you thank your past, you realize for a couple of things. One, your father was never perfect. He still isn't perfect. Um, whoever hurt you is not perfect. And also realize that you are 50% in charge of your reality creation. And he was 50% in charge of his reality creation. And so you have to take responsibility Mm -hmm. for having created that reality where you were treated in that way based on your own issues. And my brother never felt that for my father. I felt it. So his perspective of my father is very different to my perspective of my father. And so as Tony Robbins says, unconscious to conscious memories, Dr. Joe Dispenza says, wisdom is having memories with no triggers. Alan Watts says the knowledgeable man has to learn something new every day, but the wise man has to unlearn something new every day. And so it's in this process of healing your memories that you actually become more powerful for the future. And so, yes, my father, money issues, the bullying, whatever there was in my childhood, 
to get to a point where to realize that I was responsible for creating that reality and none of those people were perfect and my expectation of them being perfect is what's holding me back. It's, it must be, must be such a liberating feeling actually forgiving, taking off that backpack and actually then excelling at your life. If you keep on looking backwards, it's you're going to stagnate. And either you deal with it and you kind of make peace and you, and you say your sorrows and you kind of just move on. You know, if you understand Well, see, the problem is, is that it's very difficult to forgive people from the same perspective if you've been hurt. And the energetic process needs to be one of not trying to forgive, but to increase your energy vibration. And when you increase your energy vibration, your perspective of that situation changes. If you're trying to forgive from the same vibrational stance, you can't forgive because that pain is so deeply entrenched in your psyche that it's frozen. And so from that place, you can't. And so what I've learned from Dr. Joe Dispenza's work is the more you meditate and the more you increase your vibration, the more you look after yourself, what starts to happen is you start seeing that person from a different perspective. And from that perspective, there's no hook and it's easier to forgive. And so we all know the theory of forgiving. And we think we have forgiven, but then something triggers us and then we hate that person again. And that's because we haven't forgiven that person from a different perspective, but from the same perspective. So it's been a mental construct of forgiveness, not an emotional one. And the emotional one can only come when you're in an altered state of vibration or an increased state of vibration. And that happens by meditation, doing teacher plants, doing whatever the case may be in order to create a high vibrational mm -hmm. stance. So What's Your Moonshot is your first book. And... Um there you you're pretty vulnerable in that book itself obviously just like from the beginning as well like how you started and also losing everything and i just want to quickly touch on that firstly it was a premi pt franchise which you were one of the first franchises in south africa how would that come about so how would where was that conversation how did that even so I have been in the hospitality game since I was very very young it was one of my first jobs being a waiter at a catering company um, coming from a single mom again, you don't have pocket money, so you got to hustle yourself. So I was really good at that waitering and being a barman. And I went to London, I was a barman there, and I was a waiter there. And so the hospitality game just seemed very obvious for me. And um, I remember eating at the first Premier Piatti in 1999 in Green Market Square. And I just couldn't believe the level of energy and the attention to detail mm. they'd gone through to create an experience. And I had at that time the rights for a retail shoe called acupuncture footwear, which I'd put in um, 30,000 Rand or so, and I'd built it up to a few hundred thousand Rand. I was 23, 22, 23. And so I had quite a bit of money and I came back to Joburg from my holiday in Cape Town. After being at Premier Piatti, I got hold of them. I said to them, I'd like to buy a store. And so they said, the first one they're looking at right now is Rosebank. And so would I be keen on it? So I looked at it and it just never worked out. And then they said, listen, we actually have Constantia going, but we'll, we're happy to share it with you. So if you want to buy half of it, you can. And uh, so I came down to Cape Town. I bought half of the first franchise store in, in Constantia. And um, at 24 years old, at I had 24. my first restaurant. Yeah, and, and they I took so, you seriously? Yeah, I was serious though. Okay. So they interviewed me and, and they were off. After the interview, I didn't know what had happened, but I went to go meet one of the other directors and the other director said to me, congratulations, Chesco has accepted you. And I had no idea that I'd been accepted, but I, I came to understand that we were very keen on having the right franchises, obviously when the thing was starting out. And I went on to have six of them, but it also is also the most incredible growth of having to lead hundreds of people at a very young age, 25, 26, 27, having restaurant customers um, and the level of service at Premier was really high. And also I had very abusive 
um, franchisors, very extremely abusive human beings. And all of them with daddy issues. And if you look at the whole structure of Premiority, everybody has daddy issues there. So the patterning was everybody was desperate for acknowledgement. Wow. And so we couldn't work hard enough for enough acknowledgement. And um, so I rose and was multi-millionaire. Had, I was a golden child by 27. I had all the trappings of money and cars and girls and everything. And then at 30, I lost everything. Sorry, just to quickly go back at like, you said at 20, 27, you were mm. like, Rolling. Yeah, rolling, rolling. So this, even as a 27-year-old now, I mean, that's impressive taking in the year mm -hmm. that you did this. Um, so coming from your upbringing, no money, mm -hmm. obviously being the provider of the house, this is jackpot. Now you can look after your whole family. Mm -hmm. You can give your mom, mm -hmm. you know, support. Mm -hmm. um, you buying, obviously, cars left, right, and center. You can go and entertain. Mm -hmm. That must have filled such a beautiful gap inside of like, mm -hmm. you know, like i don't know personal fulfillment like mm. i've i've got i've got a direction for my life you know mm. like i'm i'm doing something with my life and it's paying off it was exactly the opposite wow. which is the the mad thing yeah is i start my second book off with a line that says are you running away from the darkness or are you running towards the light and i was running away from the darkness i wasn't running towards the light and many 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 people around the world today are not building anything they're running away from something and so they're running away from poverty, from debt, from just not having money. They're running away from that. They're not actually trying to build anything. So they're constantly anxious. They're never excited. And so no matter how much you have when you're anxious, it's not enough because mm. you're desperate for more because you're not safe. And so mm. I was really unhappy when I had no money. I was really unhappy when I had a lot of money because all I wanted was a bit more. So I never reached that place of fulfillment ever. Because I just, you know, when I had one car, I wanted the next one. And it wasn't enough. I had six restaurants. I mean, who needs six restaurants? You need one. One's enough. It can pay for your great lifestyle. But I had six because I needed acknowledgement. You know, I needed, des I was desperate for it. And look around the world. People are desperate just to be seen. Just see me. Something, I just somebody see me. And I think the biggest problem we have in Cape Town right now, the Bergies, is that nobody looks at them. Nobody engages with them. They're not seen. So what they do is they scream, they shout, they throw things around. They just need attention. But this is all the way up to people in Fresno with their Ferraris that can't afford them. It's exactly the same psychological issue that we're all having, you know? And so we have to switch away from running away and running towards. And the only way you can do that is to engage curiosity and let go of ego. And that takes healing of your past and your mm. memories and those sort of things. So there's an equation that you can follow to shift from one to the other. Yeah. I listened to one of your um, one of your audiobooks, um, uh, Magnetize, actually, where I think you went into detail about, I think you owed the franchisors like $8 million or something? Well, the franchisors... Um, incredibly intelligent incredibly malicious and they sued me for future franchise fees so i had signed a 10-year agreement and after seven years the one store wasn't working and instead of giving me any leeway because i'd already made them hundreds of millions they said no we're now suing you for the three years of outstanding franchise fees and it comes to eight million rand and they sequestrated me but you know when i look at the ceo he is incredibly greedy and jealous which is such a weird makeup because if he was good to me he would still be making money off me and he just couldn't be he couldn't help himself and he did it to lots of franchisees as soon as they got too successful he found a way to cut them and so his number one business model was to take franchisees take their stores away from them and then resell them take them away and then resell them he's done that to camp spay premi 10 times, I don't know how many times he's done it. So I wasn't special. I call him a dark angel because 
angels come to teach us things. And sometimes you need a dark one to teach you the biggest lesson. So I'm very grateful to him. I feel bad for him because a lot of people used to say to me, don't worry, he's got a lot coming to him because he's done this to you. And I said, no, he's already in the karma because if he's that greedy, he's never has enough. So he's already a multimillionaire and he still needs to screw people to make more money. What a horrible life to be in. You know, it's just never enough. And it's because he's anxious. He's not excited about what he's doing. Yeah. You you're making all these millions now. There's lawsuits out to you. You've you in the nine mole that you owe. You know these guys. So that's I mean that comes with mad anxiety. Oh, so, dude, I so, didn't sleep for a year, a year wow. while it was crumbling around me. Wow! Because I had this incredible home and incredible sports cars that I couldn't afford. It was crumbling, and nobody on the outside knew. I would knew it was crumbling. So you I couldn't didn't sleep. tell anyone. Well, I couldn't because I had this persona. Mm. You know, I was cruising around, people knew me from my restaurants and my stores. And so I was 27, 28, you know, like there's no social media. So you, that was your social media. That was your social capital. And so that was imploding and, um, couldn't sleep. And then, and then when everything got taken away, I was too sh- ashamed and too embarrassed to leave my home. One, cause I couldn't afford to, or even stayed my, I, I went to stay at my friend's second bedroom and no car. And I had like, I don't know, 8,000 Rand in my account that was getting closed. So I had to move that money to my mom, 8,000 Rand. And I was making 180,000 Rand a month just a few months before that. And it was an incredibly depressive time. And incredibly, and, and the number one emotion that came up for me was shame. I was so embarrassed of being so cool and so not cool. And so I was angry and I was upset. And it took me years to get out of it. Yeah. I think that's the next question. Like, how does a man from having all of these and kind of losing it, how does, some people obviously can't deal with it. So they, some people, you know, like um, commit suicide and some people just, they, they never get on that upslips yeah. again. And here I'm sitting in front of you, you know, call it 18 years, you know, mm. 19 years later, and you've completely taken that energy, dealt with that energy, which we'll get into now, and completely revolutionized the Johnson A that's mm. in front of me now. Just, ex- just walk me through this, explosion and then okay i'm taking what's just happened and i'm dealing with this Mm. how do you deal with that so i think the biggest thing that people don't realize is that we have three bodies we need to look after and we have a spiritual body a emotional body and a physical body and what happens in our reality is that most people just look after their physical body because it's just important that you lean and that you look good and you smell good and that sort of thing but we don't realize that Everything that happens in our physical body is a representation of our emotional bodies. And the emotional body is the thing that holds the patterning of relationships and memories and projections and biases and negativities and positivities. And so what I did was I dove deep into my emotional work and I started doing workshops. Every bit of money I had, I prioritized um, doing a meditation retreat or going and doing a workshop called jump, which was four days out in the mountains where you'd really have to jump into a new life to let go of your past. And so I spent weekends and weekends and weekends with the bit of money I had just trying to do as many different courses I could. I, I just jumped, dove, I dove straight in. Running to the darkness. I was, well, I, I ran straight towards, because I realized that my patterning was broken because even with all the money that I thought was going to make me happy, I was unhappy. And so I was like, okay, well, what I need to do now? And so that's why I went and started doing all this work. And it was a culmination of a decade of work that popped me. And so it took me a decade of doing 
I would say 25 modalities, all the way from silent meditation retreats to TRE, which is trauma release exercise, to body talk, to Reiki, to jump workshops, to growth clubs, to, I mean, just a, pl a plethora. And I remember my mom saying to me, geez, dude, like, calm down, like, slow down. You know, you're like, you've really taken this to level, to like, to another level. And I said, I, I, I need to access my genius. I need to access my joy. I need to understand what it is that clicks. And now my mom's like, thank God you did all that work. Mm -hmm. You know, thank God you did it. And I was so, I didn't realize what you were doing. Now I realize what you've been doing. And so really what it was, was breaking down my personality and the motivating factors of what had made me act in a certain way based on unpacking my persona and psyche with many different teachers and many different modalities. And I'm still doing that. And I think the closer we get to understanding that our emotional body should be our priority in as far as healing is concerned, we'll realize that that becomes the catalyst for everything else around you, the amount of money you carry, the amount of joy you have, the amount of health you have, the amount of better relationships you have, are all based on a set of memories that you're carrying, which are either there to energize you or de-energize you. And if you can heal those and understand them and forgive, you release of the past. And then you start moving into the future, making decisions with your heart, not your ego and not your logic. Because your logic and ego are there to protect you. Your heart there is to be able to allow this level of excitement and creativity to come out. So this combination has become really, really powerful and has uh, catalyzed me into where I am today. I think I met you just as I was embarking on the Camino. Mm. And everything you're saying now is, I can relate so much to it. How important is that for a businessman? Because obviously the, the path of an entre entrepreneur is, very, is a very lonely path and it's difficult to communicate what's in your mind. How important is that for, for well, an I think it's. I think it's, you've got to come to the realization that every single human being wants more fluidity and more abundance in their lives. There isn't anybody who doesn't want that. Do you want to have a totally peaceful and zen day, make a lot of money and choose what you want to do with you and your family and your best friends at any time, at any moment? That's success. That's ultimately success. And so if you're not doing the work to create more fluidity, and to build a relationship with holding capacity to have abundance in your life and to be able to add value to the world, then everything you're doing is a waste of time. You know, and everybody I speak to, and most of my friends that I speak to that are going through a tough time, don't do any work on their emotional bodies. And it's the easiest answer I can give them. They're like, John, I'm having this issue, this issue, and this challenge, that challenge. Okay, so how much work have you done on this? None. How many times have you been to gym this week? Three times. Okay, well, you've done three hours of gym on your physical body, not one minute on your emotional body. So what do you expect is going to happen? So I think it's by far the most important thing that we need to do. And in society, we are getting there because there's never been so many self-help gurus. There's never been so many meditation apps. There's never been so many yoga retreats. So we are in the transition phase where people are starting to explore the deeper values of who they are. Remember that society for the longest time never allowed us to ask questions about who we were. The dogma of society and religion told you who you were. And so there's no asking questions about the book at Sunday school. You were told to get out the class or you would get a smack. And so today, now we have the opportunity to ask questions and now it's starting and now it's the, the time of rediscovery of who we are. And I think we're going to get much better and much better at it. And you can see the pockets of people and countries and cities around the world that have, have woken up 
And these cities are vegan. They ride bicycles. They don't need fancy cars and fancy clothes. They are into collaboration. They're into looking at long, elegant business models so that everybody's getting benefited throughout the day and throughout the years. So we're starting to see pockets of it really grow around the world, you know, and uh, it's my mission in life to bring more of it to more people around the world to make consciousness, awareness, collaboration, the obvious based on healing our pasts and not needing that acknowledgement and that ego boost of doing whatever it takes to get attention without looking after the environment and animals and our fellow beings. Where, where does like medication come in that? Do you, are you on, have you ever been on medication? Um, so let's first, first make sure we understand why people take medication is that from a very young age, they were told not to worry about their passion, but follow what everybody else is doing at school. And your passion became the hobby you did on the weekends. But at school, we all sat and did algebra together. We all read the same book together. We did the exact same processes. And so our lives became linear in fashion and parrot-like. And because of that, we never accessed our joy. We accessed our logic. And so we go through life not accessing this incredible energy we have in our hearts because we've never been taught how to. And our society around us never gave us any they never celebrated you accessing your heart. And you often hear, well, my passion won't make me money. So I have to work hard in order to do my passion. And that's rubbish because your passion is your message from your soul that you're in line and on purpose with what you're doing. And so what happens is you become depressed because you're not actually following your joy. You're following your ego and logic. And so what happens is you become an alcoholic, you become pharmaceutical, you become whatever to be able to numb away the concept that you never picked up your joy. And so if you had to redesign how you make decisions that is based on joy first, excitement first, what shines brightest first, rather than what makes logical sense, you then realize that you have access to an incredible level of energy, innovation, creation, creativity, Antidepressants is not time for antidepressants. You're busy, you're too busy fulfilling your purpose. And so people that are doing antidepressants aren't realizing that all they have to do is realize that they're making decisions from the wrong place in their body and they need to change that. And that takes a bit of work. So pharmaceuticals, I think, are really the devil. And, and, and I mean, I don't believe in the devil. And, but as far as their drive to heal people on symptoms and not the cause, to be able to elongate people's needs for, for, for medication for long periods of time. These all things are starting to become transparent for us all to see. And the questions around them are growing. And so what we have to do is we have to realize that the real opportunity for us not to be on any form of medication is to tap into who we are. And that in itself is an incredibly healing process because you realize that your perspective of time is what gets you to age. If you're having a horrible life and your perspective of time is that your dad, your days just drag and drag and drag and drag, that's how you're aging. You're getting sick quicker, you're off purpose. And so if you can just fix your perspective onto what makes you most curious and excited, you actually age differently. You become healthier just by living in the space of being in the flow. So I am anti-pharmaceuticals, I'm anti all of those things, but ultimately I just need people to understand that there is an opportunity to be able to live without them, but you know, you have to go through the healing process. I, I keep on thinking about, imagine a life where everyone is actually doing 
what they love doing. This world would Jeez. be phenomenal. How amazing would it be? People don't know why they're here. And then they settle for second best. They go and get the nine to five and they think, well, this is what I'm supposed to be. Bless our parents' souls because they were like, well, if you're an accountant or whatever it is, a safe job, there will be a job like that in the future. I remember being a digital producer at an ad agency where a digital producer didn't exist when I graduated because things are happening like this. Every time we speak, every time I see you speak, you leave this beautiful message of inspiration. Do you feel, do you feel obligated to inspire people do you feel like that's part of the john journey to get people out of that rut and into their purpose i don't think i leave people inspired and i, and I tell you why i think i leave people with the choice to take responsibility for their lives and i think inspiration for me is all positive and for me it's i want to be real it's like you can be inspired if you want to be, but if you don't take responsibility for your life, none of everything I've just said to you is useless. And ultimately it comes down to your incredible privilege of choice, whether you want to take responsibility for your life or not. And I don't feel obliged to do anything. I just feel obliged to be the best version of myself and the better version of myself I become, the more light I hold, the brighter I become, the more I can see and the more I can share. The trick with accessing your genius is that you have to keep sharing it. If you stop sharing it, you'll stop getting access to it. And so you're, you become a service provider to humanity based on what your unique signature is. And so when you can access your unique signature and because it's an endless stream of energy, you're obliged to share it because you wanna access more of it. It's not for you, life's coming through you, not for you. And so the deal with accessing your, energy, in your genius is to keep sharing it. And so I feel obliged to share it based on if I can access more, I can share more, which means I must access more, I must share more, access more, share more. And that, that sort of process doesn't allow me to take my foot off the accelerator because at every point I have an aha moment, that becomes part of a book, a talk, mm -hmm. a social media, move on. And the less of it I share, the more of it are stuck in the sort of highway of information that's coming to me. That's why I keep writing books because it's coming through me so fast. And so sometimes when I'm reading my books for Audible, I read a passage and I'm like, geez, that's really good. I can't even remember writing it, to be honest. It just came through me. Okay, let's quickly look at current millennials. Do you think that they are lazy or do you think that they've figured out a way to not work harder, but smarter? So I don't think it's a millennial thing. I think uh, we also got to realize that generations are fluxing into each other. And so we're fluxing in and out of each other's need states. And so the first time a millennial asked the baby boomer to wear shorts to work, the baby boomer was incredibly angry. And uh, three weeks later, it's really hot and that baby boomer wears shorts to work because the audacity of the millennial to ask that question changed the baby boomer. And so I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a millennial thing. I think it's a global phenomenon that we're starting to feel right now where we've started to realize that that level of hard work is not required for success. Mm. And so I don't know if so much the millennials are lazy and entitled as the older generations are just willing up to give up too much of their lives in order to create a version of success. And if you just think about our fathers, they used to work jobs they must probably didn't like for minimal money and to, in order to get a pension at the end of the, the, their life or whatever the, the retirement age was. And so 
you know, and if you think before that, you had people working in factories, and before that, you had people working on the on the on the earth in farms, and they were working 16, 18 hour days just to feed themselves. And then factory workers came in 12 hour shifts, and then you had office workers that were nine to fives. And so now what happens to us as human beings, unfortunately, we think what we are in right now is normal. Mm-hmm. And anything new that comes out is entitled, lazy. They, we can call them any name we want. What do you think our grandparents called us? Mm-hmm. They call us the same crap. Mm-hmm. Those, so I don't think, I think that we have the opportunity to redesign success and redesign how quickly we can achieve it. And so this opportunity with 4 billion people connected to the internet right now, that was never around when we were kids. And so now you have a 16-year-old who makes a cap and Rihanna shares it on Instagram and boom, he's a millionaire. Yes, that is what the reality is today. So is it entitlement? I don't know if it's entitlement. I mean, maybe I think most generations are spoiled initially when they come into the world because they don't just know much because at 16 years old, did you know anything? I didn't know anything. And so I think we've got to get away from trying to stereotype and also realize that what we're doing and what we've done isn't perfect. And so there is new ways to become successful quickly. There is new ways of going about redesigning success. And, you know, maybe a millennial thinks that success is uh, having one suitcase in a digital nomad and does PR from a Bali cafe for a client in Congo and Belgium. That's success. Is that being entitled? No, it's just redesigning what success is. And so, excuse me. And so just because they don't want to buy a car just like we did or a house just like our parents did, what is that? Does that mean they're not successful? So yes, they, it's new. And yes, it's never been done before. Uh, I just think it's the new way. I don't think it needs to be labeled. So it's inevitable that technology advancements are going at a, at a pace that we uh, couldn't believe. Just last night, I was watching that documentary, Apollo 11, about sending you know mm. the first guys to the moon. And um, I was just, I was just, like blown away by what a computer looked like then and Mm. what they could do you know that time Mm. with what they had with technology inevitably going to start taking over jobs what's going to happen to like the labor force if you Mm. take a country like south africa i mean we 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 create jobs to keep people alive Mm. what's going to happen to that because it is coming Mm. and and how does how do we gear up for that Mm. So yes, there is going to be turmoil, but there was also turmoil when we went from the agricultural time to the industrial times until people reskilled themselves. And you know, we've got more people alive than ever before in humanity and more people are working than ever before. So, you know, we have redesigned jobs. And so yes, there will be a lull period where these jobs will be replaced by machinery while people take the time to retrain themselves. But we must also realize it's not just the labor force. Doctors are being replaced. Lawyers are being replaced. Accountants are being replaced. White collar workers are being replaced. So it's not just blue collar people, right? But we've also got to realize that we're moving into a reality where most things are starting to become free. So you don't need as much. Survival is moving to thriving just on a natural basis. It's called the zero marginal cost society where things are being made at zero zero marginal cost because technology does that to things. It makes it cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And the three pillars that have held up capitalism or economies from the beginning of us understanding economies has always been communication, energy, and transportation. And if we look at what's happening now with communication, everybody's speaking on WhatsApp. And data is becoming cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. You can be on a Wi-Fi hotspot. Communication is free. We never would have thought that. Uh, Never five years ago. Now we have, next, there will be transportation. We'll start becoming free. And people think, well, that's impossible. How are you going to do that? Well, we've just seen what Elon Musk has done in America. 
he is competing against Uber and Lyft. And he made the announcement uh, on the 22nd of April this year. And um, Uber and Lyft charge between 2 and $3 a mile. Uh, Tesla will charge $0.18 cents a mile. And that's because it doesn't have a driver, it doesn't have petrol, it doesn't have these things. And so the whole construct of mobility is changing. So that's going to become free. And then next to that's going to be energy. It's going to become free. And if you look at energy, transportation, and communication, that gives us access to education. That becomes free. That becomes, so you just keep going. And so we are moving into a world that's going to be turmoil if you're not retraining yourself. But not just not retraining yourself in labor. Retraining yourself in everything. Don't, don't think any job is safe, including mine. You can now have a 3D version of me beamed into a room, speaking a accent that the audience understands, being in a color of a human that the audience wants to know. I don't have to be okay. there. In fact, you can plug that person into a best talk ever being told with the latest information and AI can design every job. So we mustn't be fooled to think that it's just labor, it's just South Africa, it's, no, it's everybody. And so we have to, one, take responsibility to expose ourselves to the new information and new skill sets. And two, we mustn't panic because mm. look, right now you take your phone out and with a WhatsApp video call, you can speak to anybody in the world. Mm. Don't forget that part. And don't forget the part that Uber is now half the price of normal taxis already in, the, in this right now. So there's lots of those things coming. But look, everybody is in panic. Why? Because they're trying to recreate yesterday into tomorrow. They're stuck in their memories. And like, no, we must carry on. People must still be doing odd jobs at a till going, deet, deet. Who the hell wants to do that anyway? Is that person even making enough money to live? They're not. They're in total survival. And so we're stuck on this horrible space, but then we don't want to change it because that at least we're just surviving. And that's not the point. The point is how do we go thriving? And so... As human beings, again, we just think that what happened in the last decade is what should be the case. And so are millennials entitled? Yeah, well, compared to us bringing up, yes, they are. But us bringing up, was that the norm? Mm. It wasn't because the generation before had a different norm. And so I think that we stop this concept of panicking around these things and actually get busy with becoming the best version of yourself to create waves and to create a unique signature. Absolutely. So we can add value to the yeah. world we live in and then hire people if you're so worried about them. I had this lady on social media talking about how, you know, so many jobs are getting taken away. Everybody's so panicking. I said, well, why don't you step into your power and create more jobs if you're mm. so worried? Oh, no, oh, oh, no, I don't know what to say now. Okay, well, <laughs> it's easy to panic. Yeah. It's easy. Our brain likes to panic. Yeah. It's a patterning. It's something we're actually addicted to. Dr. Joe Dispenza shows us that mm. our brains are habitual in going into worry first. And so we have to untrain ourselves. And if you are falling into worry all the time, you're living with a monkey brain inside your head. You haven't done the work. And so if you're tapping your foot up and down all the time and you're irritated or frustrated or impatient all the time, you're a young human being stuck in an adult body. Mm. Wake up, take mm. responsibility, fix it, become elegant, become deliberate, mm. become conscious that you've got a pattern that you need to follow and see and connect. And so it frustrates me when people ask me those questions. Because the question itself comes from a place of lack, not abundance. And so, sorry, good question, but I'm not happy with it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was, I've, I've been retrenched twice in one year before. Congratulations. And yes, I'm very glad that happened. It was a blessing in disguise. And I see it, it now, six, seven years later. I'm, John, I'm worried about the guy that's in a 95 right now that doesn't have the fire that you have, me or any other entrepreneur has. If he is made redundant, what's going to happen to that guy? Tough. Get fire, bro. Take responsibility for your life. Break down the word responsibility. The ability to respond, not react. 
That takes work. So you, you want to go climb Table Mountain? Are you fit? No, get fit. Then go walk up it. If you're fat, you're going to take strain. So stopping fat. Like take responsibility. So yes, if you're worried about them, that's your issue. I'm not worried at all. I've got zero time for people that are victims of their situation. Okay. Zero. And I put on social media the other day, when somebody starts complaining, all I hear is blah, 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 fish paste. I don't hear it. <laughs> I just can't engage with it. Yeah. I just ignore it. Because ultimately, if you're complaining, you're not taking responsibility. There's no gray. You're either doing it or you're complaining why it's not being able to done. And so I'll have a discussion with people and they'll have a discussion and they'll be like, but. I'm like, stop, but. You can have a million buts because you come from a single mom family, because the economy is bad, because you're black, because you're white. Because Carry on. You've got a list, a plethora along that you want to create. It's bullshit. Yeah. It's bullshit. I have no time for it. There's no more excuses. Also going back to, to self-education, how relevant, how relevant will a degree be in the next five years? It's not relevant now. Even uh, why, EY, Apple, they've all stopped hiring people just with degrees. And so degrees are a skill set from yesterday. And I guess certain degrees will still be important, like a, I guess, like a critical thinking and blockchain and artificial intelligence mm -hmm. and those sort of things. I Obviously, that sort of practice is required for those skill sets, but more and more and more, the ability for us to create our own unique signature mm -hmm. in this reality and then be able to share that with mm -hmm. the rest of humanity, utilizing the internet, which gives us access to billions of people that people mm -hmm. kind of forget. You don't need to work for anybody. You can just, and I don't think we should be working for anybody. I think all of us should be micro entrepreneurs networking with each other. I mean, around my brand, I have 12 people that are all freelancers. Mm. All of them are freelancers all around the world. Mm. They all work on different projects. They're all excited to work with me on my project and then they move on to other projects and you're continuously creative, continuously flexible. You are there as a micro entrepreneur, mm. which means that you're hustling to make it happen. You're not lazy as mm. employees can become. And so for me, the future requires us to step into our power and take responsibility for it. And that's why I keep writing my books. And yeah. I, that's why my success of my keynotes have become incredible because at, the, at that level, I'm asking audiences to take responsibility. Because if you don't, you're going to complain and your life's going to be horrible. And that's your issue. It's not mine. Okay, John, three books in three years. That's a tall order. With all the keynotes, all the traveling, all the everything that you do, how do you still get time to write a book every year? If you want to learn something, read it. If you want to understand something, write about it. If you want to master something, teach it. And so for me as a teacher of sorts, the best way I can think about things critically and in a, in a driven process is in a book. And so the depth of my thinking is now categorized and contextualized in a way that needs to make sense. And that makes me a much better taker in of information because when I know I'm writing a book, everything I listen to and everything I read gets categorized into a section and I have to read it and listen to it in a way that I need to explain it. And that in itself makes me a master of my craft. And so it's the most selfish thing for me to do be writing a book because I get deeper better about my subject and gives me new material for my mm. talks, keeps me relevant, keeps me fresh, keeps me on the cutting edge and gets me to be upgrading myself every year on the latest version of me 
my perspective and the conversation that's going on around the world about preparation for the future. Yeah. And so for me, it's an obvious to be writing a book. It's like, how can you not be writing a book? And I think everybody should be writing a book because the minute you commit to writing a book, the ability for you to start taking information and changes. Which also kind of makes you forever relevant because if you're constantly ahead of the game, yeah. Um, but then ultimately you can create a syllabus and an online education pr- platform. Which is what we're doing. Oh, okay, well. Yeah. It's called Future just... Self Institute. Okay. We're starting to do that right now. That's wonderful. It's all begun, yeah. yeah. So you're busy with the fourth one? Yeah, it's called The Evolution of Value. Okay. And I know the way you write your books are very new age as well. You don't have to, I'm gone are the days where you have to go into the public, like publication and sit and with a, what, like you I just, have a whole team. Yeah. So I have a team of researchers, copywriters, publishers, and ghostwriters. And so my, it's a project. Yeah. And so the concept's mine, the structure and framework is mine. The way I want to tell the story is mine. And then I get my research team to research stories mm. and then we start understanding which stories fit where then i bring my ghostwriters in and then we start making it all look right and mm. feel right and then i ha- always have the final say the mm. final i design the covers it's a project you know it's just a project and uh, the project right now is giving me the opportunity to teach a craft that is making me better and better at my mm. own craft and uh, so yeah i do it in a modern way but i think why not you don't have to be stuck in a desk writing 18 hours a day you can have teams of people around you doing the things that you don't want to be doing or that you're not good at and so i'm not really good at writing but i'm very good at storytelling and connecting dots yeah and so i take that skill and then hire people that can do the stuff that i don't want to do yeah which also makes the process way quicker well that's why i can do it in a year every year i can bring a new book out and people are amazed by it but i'm saying you know there are no rules you can do it any way you want to do it and i'm doing it this way and it's great for my career and it's great for the gravitas that i've created for my brand but for me, ultimately, I want to get better. Yeah. And so you commit to writing a book. Yeah. You have to get much better at that subject because you have to stand up in front of thousands of people to tell them about it. And now all of a sudden you must understand that in detail. Yeah. And also back it up with proof and case studies. And so it's a fantastic, fantastic um, um, like sort of project to be working on continuously. And so now my next one is a heavily leading towards masculinity and understanding my own sacred masculine and my own mature masculine and looking at the personality traits that an immature masculine carries and a mature masculine carries. And I'm blown away of how many immature masculine traits I have that I didn't even know I had. And if you look around the world, I'm like, Jesus, Donald Trump is every immature masculine rolled into one. And he's a great representation of what's going on around the world with men. Because most men have got a version of Donald Trump inside them. And so he's just a reflection point and a projection point of our own immature masculine. So it gets me to become more of an expert in a subject that fascinates me, which is developing a more fluid, collaborative, conscious, powerful man. And so that becomes now part of my next book. It blows my mind how vulnerable you become and and are in your books when you do talks. I really look up to, to, to the fact that you do that. Isn't that, isn't that difficult? Two things. One, you can only talk about it when it's healed. Okay? So you can't talk about it if you're still sore. And you can't talk about it if it's still in your shadow. And so by me being able to talk about, for example, my divorce and what happened to me in my divorce, and I suffered from something called the Madonna Whore Syndrome, which is a horrific place where you can't have sex with your wife, which is something that most men have, which is the other thing, is that I'm vulnerable because I've healed it. And then what happens is that nobody uses it against me because most people are going through the same thing. Just nobody talks about it. 
And so then by that level of vulnerability, you get a lot of people coming in secretly telling me, thank you. Now I know what's wrong with my marriage. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Now I understand why my money relationship is broken. And so you have to be vulnerable in order to be able to bring authenticity and sincerity to your message. And will there be haters? Always. And if you, they aren't haters, you're not doing your job correctly because those people are not ready to hear those stories, you know? And so my mom didn't read my second book because she was upset that I spoke about my marriage like that. And she said it was something secret that I should have kept secret. And I said, no, I healed it. If I didn't heal it, because you haven't helped, she hasn't healed my marriage. And so for her, it was embarrassing for people to get out there. And also one thing you must remember is that no such thing as a hater, hey? there's a quitter. They quit on their own dreams and now they're hating on everybody else living theirs. And so anybody who tunes me or gets on me, I'm like, I understand where you're at. So I see you as being a quitter. So you can do whatever you want to do. Yeah. Um, if you were in my boat, you would be helping me create more clarity. And that's the great poem by an ex-American president and is one that um, Brenna Brown uses and says, all your criticism is fine. But if you're not in the arena with me, I don't need to listen to it. If you're in the arena with me, I'm all ears. And if you're in the arena with me, your criticism is constructive. If you're outside the arena and you're just chirping, whatever. I admire your boldness, John, really. Also, um, we spoke about brand earlier and you have really just taken the John brand and really just like established it so well down to, and, and like I said, I've watched you a few times, down to how eloquent you are in your slides. It's almost like you've got these touch points. So when you pick up the book and you start reading it and you see John live, it's this beautiful, this golden thread that's right through down to your website, down to everything. And now obviously iconic little things like your your glasses, you know, the black glasses. People know John now by, yeah, the guy with, you know, the, the black frame glasses. How important is brand today and how important is it to build your personal brand going forward? Oh, man, it's... Firstly, thank you. Um, it is the most important thing you could do as online is to develop trust with people that are watching you. Mm. It's building social capital. And the way we build social capital today is very different to how it used to be. Um, how it used to be was very much based on money and about um, the guy driving to the nightclub of the Ferrari. You know, that was social capital to the 10th degree. And in today's world, social capital is built by the experiences and value you add online without selling. And that's the real trick is that most people use social media to sell and I don't. I never sell anything on social media. I just add value on social media. And in that process, what's happened is that people have felt a level of trust from me. They trust me. And because they trust me, whatever I bring out, they engage with because I'm not trying to sell too hard. And so people need to build, number one, their social brand in as far as their name is concerned, not their business. That's what's really, I'm sure I've told you this, is that your name is more important than your business name because you'll be in your business today and next year you'll be in a different business. And now what happens? That whole trust that you built to that brand is gone because that business doesn't exist anymore. So in our world today, where we'll be swapping businesses and swapping jobs and swapping careers all the time, the only thing that you have is your name. And so your name must be the strongest thing that you're able to portray out mm. there, but also then everything that you're doing on social media, are you helping or are you showing and showing off? And if you're always showing off, you've got no followers, you've mm. got no trust. You're too desperate for that sort of attention. If, you, if you're adding value and sharing thought processes and really giving people sort of a aha moment as often as you can, 
you start developing trust. Mm. And in the process of developing trust, you build fans. And with fans, you build clients. And with clients, the momentum happens, you know? Mm. So it's a long game, but it's well worth being patient for it rather than trying to bite at anything that makes money. But you see, when you follow ego or logic, that's the only thing you can do because you're desperate, you're mm. chasing. When you're following your highest curiosity, you're patient, you're elegant, naturally, because that's just what happens. You're not in a hurry. John, you have traveled the world. You have met amazing people uh, on your journey. Your whole life, I think since you've launched the Johnson Sane brand, it has completely changed your life. And I'm sure sometimes you pinch yourself going, is this my life? I mean, I, I remember like chatting to you, then you're in this country, then you're in this country and all these things. Does your life now, do you now feel like, like your life is where, where it always had to be? Um, is this just the beginning? Um, like, where, and what is then the next step for John? I laugh in the mirror to myself because I still can't believe these things are happening around me. Um, I often have people coming up to me to take selfies. I have people mailing me to thank me for the work that I've done to that's helped them. The level of social capital I've got today I've never had before. It's helped me date better. It's helped me. It's, it's, in fact, it's, it's impacted everything around my life. I still don't quite believe that it's happening. Um, I'm amused that it is happening because I'm still the same guy. Internally, I still have my own insecurities and my own issues that are going on. Um, what's next for me is just this on a bigger scale. It's to move towards a New York Times bestseller, to be on stage with Simon Sinek and the likes, to be a global thought leader in what I do, um, to be revered as one of the world's best. And in that, I need to become the best version of myself. And that's an ongoing job. And ultimately, if you look at any of the theories around science, we are all light. Everything around us is light. And if we are able to hold more light of who we are, meaning that we can access more of the light and we can have less leaks of the light leaking out, mained based on emotional issues or spiritual issues or what are those things. And ultimately, when you start healing those things, you just start holding more light. And then people say, wow, your energy is so amazing. Or, geez, you're glowing. Or, um, geez, you got so much energy. All that is is that you're holding more light. Mm. And because you're holding more light, you can see further. Mm. You are brighter. And so really the practice becomes how much more brighter can I become and how much more light can I hold in order to be able to achieve the sort of the physical realization of being the world's best at what I do and mm. to be in the New York Times bestselling list. And so that's why I'm writing a book every year because I know I need to get better and I know my stories need to get deeper mm. and I need to become a better version of myself in order to achieve that global sort of um, a stage. So yeah, I'm working towards it. But I still find it unreal right now what's going on to me and I, I love it. I mean, I absolutely mm. love it, but it's fresh and it's wonderful and mm. I just, um, I'm in my highest excitement when it's happening. Um, John, this has, been, this has been insightful, I think not only for myself, but also for anyone listening to this. Um, boldness, I feel like we are only here once. This is it. And I want to thank you for your time. I know you're busy. Uh, um, and, and, and I think that's what, what Profound is. It's about... I wanted to know the guy behind, you know, the guy on stage and, 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 you know, just thank you for, for also just being vulnerable and also just sharing some, some insights. And, and I'm pretty sure, you know, we can all just learn from each other. 
you know, in, in a few you know, years from now, we'll be hopping on a rocket, having breakfast in, in Paris together, you know, within 30 minutes. That's right. <laughs> yeah, that's what's coming. So, so it, is, it, is, it is a bright future, like you said. And, and listen, um, I must just say the same to you. You know, there's very few people out there that are also operating from their hearts and you're one of them. And congratulations to you for everything that you've achieved. And I can imagine there's a lot more coming. And because you are heart-led, I'm happy to give my time up. Thank <laughs> you.